Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. When a child breaks a window, there's usually a complicated story behind what happened. Like how the wind blew the ball away, and then a bird caught it and dropped it as it was flying over the house, which sent it crashing through the window. Never mind the bat in the kid's hand. Richard Sharp Shaver also had some wild stories in his back pocket. Born in Virginia in 1907, Richard eventually grew up to work in a factory where, one day in 1932, he experienced a bizarre event. It was around that time that he realized that his welding gun had become calibrated in such a way that it gave him the ability to hear other men's thoughts. Not only that, apparently the signal was so strong that he was able to hear demonic beings deep below the surface of the earth as they tortured other people. Now, the story behind how he came to possess these powers changed almost every time he told it, but he always swore that it was true. Richard eventually had to quit his job at the factory. He also gave up his home. As he put it, he became a hobo for several years before writing a letter to the popular science fiction magazine called Amazing Stories back in 1943. In the letter, Richard told the editors that he had discovered Mantong, an ancient proto-human language that predated all other known languages on Earth. Every syllable and sound in Mantong had a double meaning, and Richard could translate those sounds using a special formula he developed— He provided editor Ray Palmer with that formula so that he could see for himself. Palmer used his technique to reveal the hidden meaning to a handful of words and then replied to Richard, asking him how he had discovered this language. Richard had been prepared for that question with a 10,000-word explanation. He told Palmer that Mantong had originated among a prehistoric alien race that were technologically advanced beyond anything they had ever seen. They had carved out massive cities under the earth, but fled the planet due to the sun's harmful rays. Not all of them had left, though, and those who remained behind were split into two different groups. The Teros were a minority who had retained their humanity. The other group devolved into beast-like creatures known as Deros, or detrimental robots. The Deros, he claimed, still occupied those cities underground, occasionally snatching a person from the surface to take them down below. Those humans were then tortured and fed to the Deros. Those awful creatures had been known to communicate with aliens in space and use rocket ships to get around. How did Richard know all of this? Well, he claimed to have been captured by the Daros and held against his will for years. Palmer was entertained by the story, and he fleshed it out into a novella, which he then published in Amazing Stories in March of 1945. The magazine had gotten its fair share of letters to the editor before, but Richard's story seemed to have sparked a movement. Thousands of letters poured into Palmer's office from readers who said that they had also encountered the Deros and heard voices inside their heads, just as Richard had back in 1932. One woman told Palmer that she had been taken captive in Paris and was kidnapped after riding a secret elevator into the building's sub-basement. She was held in the underground caverns until a Teros found her and let her go. 
It seems that Richard's story hadn't just connected with readers. It had spawned an entire organization known as the Richard Mystery Club, and local chapters started popping up all over America. Richard continued to supply amazing stories with his, well, amazing stories. The magazine published his tales for years, until a massive letter-writing campaign forced them to stop. Authors like Harlan Ellison called Richard a publicity hound, just looking for attention, while other readers believed his stories were symptoms of mental illness. Whatever the reason, Amazing Stories cut ties with Richard in 1948, but he never cut ties with his prehistoric races. He started writing about the artifacts that he'd found that backed up his claims, such as books made of rocks, with text and pictures etched inside them. He never again experienced the kind of success that he'd found while writing for Amazing Stories, though. Decades later, his photographs and art would go on display in museums all over the country, but his tales of prehistoric beings living below the earth were written off as run-of-the-mill science fiction. Through it all, Richard Sharp Shaver continued to believe that his stories were true, as did the thousands of witnesses who wrote into the magazine with their own frightening recollections. Was Richard telling the truth? It's difficult to know for sure. Until we do, though, it's probably best to watch our step and avoid those secret elevators. Big ideas often start out small. We solve a tiny problem that we deal with every day, and then our solution finds its way to others with similar problems. It grows, and all we had to do was give it a little light. In 1916, Westinghouse engineer Frank Conrad started a small experimental radio station out of his Pennsylvania garage. During World War II, Conrad moved his operation to the top of the Westinghouse factory in Pittsburgh. Once the war ended, the Westinghouse Company, with Conrad's help, launched the first commercially licensed radio station in America, called KDKA. Over the years, radio would go through several transformations, from transmitting wartime news and information to broadcasting ad-supported entertainment, and everything in between. Heck, you might have learned about this podcast by listening to the radio. And as the technology grew, so did broadcast signals. However, there were certain areas of the world where radio waves just couldn't reach. During the 1960s, Millet Morgan, a radio physics professor at Dartmouth, had one particular place in mind. Antarctica. He had discovered that lightning and auroras generated natural radio waves and believed that those waves could be manipulated into carrying broadcasts from other countries, or even submarines. His idea was simple. At least, he thought so. He would generate artificial versions of these natural waves, which he called whistlers, using an island. Yeah, an entire island. He began his search for the perfect venue in the Pacific Ocean, which possessed numerous islands of the appropriate size and shape. Unfortunately, these islands were home to freshwater lenses, thin layers of fresh groundwater that sat atop heavier saltwater. These lenses would have caused interference with any nearby radio signals. His next potential location looked a lot more promising. It was called Deception Island, a volcanic island off the coast of Antarctica. A profitable sealing operation had been built on Deception Island in the early 1800s, until the local seal population was close to going extinct. 
Then it became a hotspot for whalers, who erected crude homes and factories there until the 1930s when their industry collapsed. And Deception Island seemed perfect on paper. The area was known to produce a large number of the whistlers needed to carry a signal. Its ring-like lagoon even had a name made for radio, Telephone Bay. Morgan drew up plans for his island antenna. He would bounce radio waves between a web of transmission lines and the local mountain ranges. As the waves relayed back and forth, they would concentrate into a signal that could be transmitted back to military subs in the area or listeners on the island itself. Now, Morgan's proposal was never put into action, but he wasn't alone in believing that the Earth itself could be used as an antenna. As early as 1904, U.S. Army General George Owen Squire realized that trees could do the talking. In 1919, Squire climbed up an oak tree near Washington, D.C. and hammered a nail into its trunk. Then he ran an insulated wire down to an old Army radio back on the ground. The tree became an antenna that carried a signal from Germany, 4,000 miles away, right to Squire's ears. With some fine-tuning, he found that he could pick up messages from ships and other locations all over the world. Scientific American wrote about Squire's Floraphone and referred to the transmissions it picked up as florograms. His efforts were tested again in 1975 when a group of scientists traveled to South America and compared their artificial antenna that they brought with them to those made of the local trees. After a thorough test in the Panamanian jungle, they determined that it would be possible to cultivate a forest designed exclusively for collecting and broadcasting radio signals over vast distances. All of that power from something as simple as a tree. Curious, to say the least. In the end, maybe it's a good thing that the birds outside our windows only have their whistles and warbles to wake us up with in the morning. Imagine the noise complaint if someone plugged a microphone into a maple tree. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.